Hey, everybody. I am over the moon excited to share this interview with you with Dr. Eben Alexander. You might know his name. He was 40 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. He became more brain dead than arguably any human being ever has and made a full recovery. And God's got a sense of humor. He also is a brain surgeon. So he knows the state that his brain came to, which was basically a pussy container of mush. And yet in that state, he had clear, vivid experiences of heaven and what that journey was like. The book is Proof of Heaven, and this is my interview with Dr. Edwin Alexander. Hey guys, studies are showing that 68% of people that watch podcasts regularly don't click the subscribe button. Do me a huge favor. If you like this content, click subscribe so other people know where to go for the cool stuff. Thank you. Welcome to Next Level Healing. I'm your host, Dr. Tara Perry. For 25 years, I've helped professionals, first responders, celebrities, Olympians, teachers, moms, dads, and people just like you achieve their results better and faster than they thought possible. This is where measurable modern science meets the quantum. We're so glad you're here. Let's dive right in. Hey, everybody. It's Dr. Tara Perry. Welcome to Next Level Healing. I am so excited um, having my guest today. He is um, an academic neurosurgeon for over 25 years who had an outstanding near-death experience. Um, his name is Eben Alexander. I'm sure you've perhaps already heard of him. He was on the New York Times bestseller list for, I believe, 40 weeks. Uh, he spent 15 years at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Children's Hospital, and Harvard Medical School in Boston. In 2008, he experienced this transcendental near-death experience and had a week-long coma that had an unexplicable brain infection associated with it that completely transformed his worldview. And uh, if you're not already on this uh, world awareness, um, welcome. It's, it's wonderful. Um, I literally cried when I read his book because the implications of what this means for all of us is absolutely tremendous. Um, he is a pioneering scientist and modern thought leader in emerging science that acknowledges the primacy of consciousness in the universe. This is very exciting. This is this is your consciousness not being located in your brain. And God's got a sense of humor because what better person to be more brain dead for a week than anybody on planet Earth and come back and write about it than academic neurosurgeon Eben Alexander. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller Proof of Heaven, uh, The Map of Heaven and Living in a Mindful Universe. Welcome, Dr. Alexander. Well, Tara, thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be with you today. You know, are you taking young pills? Because I've seen you on other interviews and you look younger now than you did then. <laughs> or has, well, this, think, has this world transformation um, just hooked you up to all that is and you just keep getting younger? Well, I think uh, almost dying can do a body good. And uh, <laughs> In fact, I'm, I'm now 15 years out. Yesterday was my 15th anniversary of waking up from coma, from that week-long coma. Wow. And uh, I must confess, I also meditate daily using sacred acoustics, binaural beats, brainwave entrainment. And I, I'm convinced that uh, meditation is a beautiful key to kind of coming into wholeness and healing 
uh, aligned with kind of our soul's purpose. And that, that helps me stay young. Plus, my oldest son is a, a fitness, um, used to be a fitness instructor. Now he's a very accomplished uh, uh, physical medicine and rehab healer. Uh, but he's given me some workouts, and I try and stick to those workouts. And I think that is another thing that kind of keeps me uh, um, feeling pretty good. So it, luckily, it seems to show. So I'd love to share with our listeners what it's like uh, to go from a materialistic worldview, um, very accomplished. Um, you had so much going on in your life that was beautiful and wonderful, a beautiful family, a beautiful community, a beautiful career that allowed you to help others. But in dying for a week and um, completely losing consciousness of Eben Alexander, you um, you emerged from that a remarkably different human being. Would you share with our listeners what that was like? And then I'd, we're going to have to take a moment and just share with our listeners what your actual story was like. Okay. Well, I think, uh, you know, it's important to point out this, this is the biggest gift of my life. And I mean, who, who can say that, that, you know, a weakened coma due to a severe bacterial meningoencephalitis that should have killed me was a tremendous gift. Well, it absolutely was. And, and of course, my journey has shown me how the hardships in life are often the greatest gifts. And it's how we deal with the hardships and how we manifest our free will and kind of recover that sense of belonging and being part of the universe at large, all bound together through love. These are all concepts that, you know, before my coma, I didn't really appreciate so much. Uh, I think it's, uh, it should be important to point out that my adoptive father, and yes, I was adopted. That's a huge part of the story, but I'm getting to that later. Um, my adoptive father was tremendously influential in my life. He was um, a combat surgeon in the Second World War, spent two and a half years in the Pacific Theater. I still have at my bedside his little uh, pocket Bible, a New Testament and Psalms that he carried with him all through uh, his time in the war. And I think that's one of the reasons he came back to this world was he, uh, he basically uh, knew God was real. He believed in heaven. He believed in love. He believed he used it in his career as a neurosurgeon. He was a chairman of a top neurosurgical training program, very scientific. And yet for him, there was never any conflict whatsoever in his strong belief in God, and in his knowing of the reality of modern science. Now, like many of us who grew up in the 60s and 70s, I kind of struggled. Uh, you know, I wanted to believe everything he, he taught me and uh, that I learned in that Methodist church in North Carolina. But in that 20-plus uh, year career in academic neurosurgery, including 15 years at Harvard Medical School, I really had difficulty seeing how conscious awareness could survive the death of the brain and body. To me, that was a real mystery. And in fact, uh, as I tell in the book, Proof of Heaven, I really went through a dark night of the soul uh, for the last uh, eight years before my coma. That dark night of the soul was triggered uh, in the year 2000 because my oldest son, Eben IV, was doing a school project in family genealogy. Uh, and he said, Dad, you got to find out more about your birth family. So I had looked into that in my 20s and then given up because the children's home kept saying, She's not, your birth mother's not looking for you, so forget about it. But now I sent another letter to the children's home, and I, this is all there in proof of heaven, but it turns out uh, in February 2000, uh, I found out uh, driving down a road in a blizzard, taking my son to go skiing from a social worker who I'd um, requested information from. And before this, they'd been very uh, kind of scant about any information about my birth mother, birth family, what have you. Uh, and what I found out that day was my birth parents got married. 
I cannot tell you what a shock that was. I always thought I was looking for my birth mother, but that my birth father had disappeared from the scene. And this is important because you had this empty hole inside of you that felt incomplete without this connection to your actual family biologically. Absolutely. And that's a tremendous part of the story at many different levels. Uh, I had struggled through my life, I think, with a very kind of subconscious uh, doubt that I was even worthy of love. You know, if my own mother had left me behind when I was 11 days old, uh, and then she wouldn't sign the papers to let me go. Uh, it was kind of a trick of social services to get me anyway. Uh, but she wouldn't sign the papers till I was four months old. So that condemned me to almost four full months living in a baby dorm in Greensboro, North Carolina, in the children's home. And uh, so that's where that came from. Now, I don't, I, you know, I'm not looking for any pity whatsoever because I could not have been more blessed in terms of the family I was adopted into. Three wonderful sisters, the older one adopted, the younger two were biological children of my adopted parents. Uh, but anyway, that was uh, kind of what I went through. And then that dark night of the soul was because uh, the social worker said um, they got married, they had three children, but your youngest sister died two years ago. That would have been in 1998. They're still grieving her loss, so it's not a good time to come back in their lives. I didn't realize it, but that kicked me over the abyss. And then from the year 2000 until my near-death experience in 2008, I quit taking my sons to church, believing in a loving, powerful God, saying prayers at night. It all just disappeared. I gave up. Uh, I would say agnostic, not atheistic, but agnostic. I didn't know, but I didn't claim to have any evidence there was a loving God out there looking after me at all. Uh, and then it turns out that uh, a year before my coma, Two of my adopted sisters walking on a beach in South Carolina said, don't you think it's time you reached out for your birth family again? My first thought was no, because I remembered how it kicked me off the cliff in 2000. But they were right. So I sent another letter. This time I got a positive response on all of that unfolded beautifully. Uh, and of course, that was a necessary step. That was one year before my coma. Um, and then, of course, what happened is deep in the coma, it turns out that that story uh, that lost sister, et cetera, became extremely critical parts of the unfolding reality of my journey. Uh, so all a tremendous gift, but I was a materialist uh, neuroscientist going up to that coma time. Uh, I had kind of given up on that faith and, uh, you know, any knowledge of, of God or uh, faith and prayer. And uh, I think a dark night of the soul can be very helpful. And who would, who would have thought that your gift would have come in the form of an extremely rare gram-negative uh, bacterial meningitis that is unheard of for an, a healthy adult man to get? Um, but as God, God does have a sense of humor, and uh, and uh, so often you hear of people that have been through horrible things, and when they can turn the corner and see it as a gift, then um, all of a sudden the lights go on and um, tell us how that whole thing unfolded for you, because one moment you were being a, a famous doctor and needed everywhere, and the next moment you, your brain turned I to mush. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I went, uh, I, I switched sides. I became the patient. And I must say, I've known other doctors, sometimes our best lessons in terms of being a healer, a physician, uh, come from our own illness. And uh, for me, the, that is absolutely true. So it, it all started November 10th, 2008, 4.30 in the morning, severe headache, backache, um, really took me over very quickly. Within three hours, I was in, going into deep coma, grand mal seizures, lying on my bed at home. There's a, a myth out in the lay press about this by 
uh, you know, an irresponsible journalist who claimed that this was a medically induced coma. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is a coma caused by severe meningitis that afflicted all lobes of my brain, my brain stem. All of that was in deep trouble from day one. And uh, that is all made clear in a medical case report that came out Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease, September 2018. And how rare is that for a healthy adult male to get that kind of um, problem? Well, somewhere in the, you know, one in, in millions, I don't know the exact number, but E. coli meningitis uh, almost always happens in newborns. About the only way it's been seen to happen in adults is when you have some kind of a neuro procedure and there's a contamination of E. coli uh, during that surgical procedure. But I hadn't had any procedures at all. So that was a huge mystery for my doctors. Where in the world did this E. coli meningitis come from in a 54-year-old white and male? And then as rare as that is, how much even rarer is it for somebody to wake up after seven days of this and to make a full recovery, which you've done, right? Exactly. And in fact, that is the point uh, of that medical case report. Um, it's by Dr. Serby Khanna, uh, Lauren Moore and Bruce Grayson, September 2018 Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease. And that uh, case report makes it very clear that my brain was in no shape to harbor any kind of dream or hallucination. There was far too much damage to my neocortex, my Glasgow coma scales, neurologic exams. Uh, I mean, every bit of it was very dire. In fact, my doctors estimated I went from a 10% chance of survival early in the week down to a 2% chance of survival at the end, but with no chance of recovery. That's why they were recommending that Sunday morning, day seven of coma, to stop the antibiotics, take me off the ventilator, let nature take its course and let me go. And of course, it was a few hours later, I, I started waking up, coming back to this world. But as I was fighting the ventilator and then they took the tube out, uh, they were shocked. How was I waking up like this? I was thanking them. And then literally within half an hour or so, as my younger sister told me, although I don't remember this, I was sitting on the bed. She said, like a little Buddha, looking at everyone around me, family, friends, self-care workers. And I would look at them in the eyes and I'd say, don't worry. Wow. All is well. Oh my goodness. That's so beautiful. And that from someone who was coming out of a coma that was supposed to kill them. Uh, but you're right. And so the points made in that case report, for one thing, this could not have been a dream or hallucination because my brain was far too ill to have harbored any such thing, much less the most profound, robust, memorable, transformational set of events of my whole life. And that's what's now, so the exciting about all these stories when people's brain either gets vastly diminished, whether it's through meditation or a coma or, uh, I mean, deep, deep meditation, advanced meditation. Uh, but the reality gets clearer and, and vivid in, in a way that's more vivid than this shadow world that we're apparently Absolutely. living in. You are correct. But I was going to say the second major point of that uh, paper, the, the peer-reviewed scientific editors of the journal said, well, wait a minute, this case is unprecedented. How do you all explain this recovery that seems so miraculous? And they said it's because he had a near-death experience. That's it. They knew of other cases of severe illness, like Anita Morjani's of stage four lymphoma, that she basically cured by having a profound NDE, or Dr. Mary C. Neal, the orthopedic surgeon who had an over 30-minute warm water drowning kayaking in Chile in the late 1990s, brought to the surface dead, but they resuscitated her. She ended up with a full recovery. She'd had a profound near-death experience. The big lesson to all of us is that our spiritual nature is there to help us connect with the universe in ways that can be tremendously healing and bring us into wholeness. 
And that is something that my journey has shown me very clearly. And that's one of the reasons that I try to share it so broadly with others. But getting back to the story, if you'd like to hear kind of where it went from there. Uh, so diving deep into coma, important to uh, point out that one of the unusual features of my NDE, in fact, I've never heard of this as an NDE feature for others in such an extreme measure, was my amnesia. I had no memories of Eben Alexander's life. I had no knowledge of our language, of humanity, of Earth, of this universe. It truly was an empty slate. And I only realized in the months and years after my coma how important that empty slate was. And it was really to allow me to accept the ultra-reality of it because it really happened, as opposed to trying to dismiss it. And uh, that's why I had to have all these lessons about memory, uh, about uh, kind of life experience, uh, life reviews, all that was in this gigantic generic form that couldn't really refer to Eben Alexander's memories of life. And again, that has a tremendous amount to do with where it went and the proof uh, of this guardian angel, because it started in what I call the earthworm's eye view, very primitive, coarse, unresponsive realm. Um, by being actually, dirty, I'd, like to, uh, I'd like to just pause on that for a moment, because uh -huh. when I... I actually thought I had read your book years ago, and it was my podcast manager that submitted a list to me and said, here, these would be great interviews for you. And I looked at your name and I thought, I read that book, um, and, and I remember this this space that you were in that's a bit unusual for NDEs, that, that yes. worm's eye view, and I'd love you to talk uh, some more about that. Um, and, and so I went back and I read your book again, and I was, I was so, uh, I guess when the student is ready, the teacher arrives, because I must have been reading your book on the 405 you know, in traffic, listening to it, uh, not really hearing it, uh, because when I went through it a second time, I mean, I was in tears multiple times um, the, by the spiritual implications of it. Um, it. It's deeply moving and the implications are phenomenal. Um, but yes, please tell our audience about this, this worm's eye view that you well, were stuck in for a while. Yeah, the earthworm's eye view, it seemed to go for a long time. Uh, and I would tell people, don't worry. It's not, you know, it sounds kind of difficult as I describe it. Because of my amnesia, I had no fear. Uh, and so I just accepted this is the way things are. Now, uh, there's much more of the story that I'll get to in a minute. But to get to your question, um, you know, initially after I woke up, I was trying to share the story with my doctors. Uh, uh, but they said, you know, forget about it. The dying brain plays all kinds of tricks. Like you would have and, said before you experienced this. <laughs> right, exactly. I must confess, I would have. But uh, but the interesting thing is, is uh, I originally thought, well, given the extreme damage to my neocortex, because I was just beginning to go through my medical records and talk it over with my physicians and found out just how ill I was. I mean, that brain was in no shape to have a dream or hallucination much less what I did experience. Um, and so I thought maybe the reason my memories disappeared was because of all that damage to the neocortex, still uh, harboring my older view that the brain is where, the, where we store memories. In, in fact, as we discussed in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, uh, uh, many in the kind of neurosurgical world, at least, are realizing we don't store memory in the brain at all. It's the last nail in the coffin of materialist neuroscience that memories are not stored in the physical brain. They're accessed through the physical brain, but that's not where they reside. And that comes from knowledge of more than a century of brain operations, removing brain here, there, and everywhere, including hemispherectomies, where half the brain is removed in young children who have severe seizure dis disorders. And yet you never find an example of brain resection associated with long-term memory loss. It doesn't happen. 
there are ways to damage a conversion of short-term to long-term memories at the hippocampus and medial temporal lobe, but that has nothing to do with where they're stored ultimately. I love the analogy of it's like a TV uh, set. So uh, the brain is the hardware and the consciousness is that frequency that the TV picks up. Well, that's, that's a very good way of putting it. We often say kind of in modern neuroscience that it's a, a filter or a, a transceiver. Uh, they, they used to use the term in the late uh, 19, uh, 1800s, a reducing valve, because we have a tendency to compare any modern technology to what we think the brain is doing. And I'll tell you, the brain is no more like a steam engine, which was the analogy for the reducing valve, than it is like a digital computer. They're, they're, forget about it. They're, they're completely different. Um, but anyway, so uh, my thinking early was because of the damage to my uh, neocortex, maybe that explained that amnesia. And yet all the memories came back. In fact, within two months, my memories had returned. Um, and we describe all this in Living in a Mindful Universe, but had returned to a point where they were more refined and complete than they had been before the coma. And I knew that from deep conversations about distant events with family and close friends that occurred both before coma and after coma and realized my memory was more complete after this kind of recovery of memory. Uh, it's a much deeper mystery than that. And also I would say that that early reflection that maybe that was the best consciousness my brain could muster while it was soaking in pus um, really doesn't bear out the bigger literature review that I've done. For example, the Tibetan Book of the Dead talks about the bardos. And uh, that's a kind of a primitive dark level that uh, our souls often have to traverse uh, in this journey. Uh, but again, I tell people never, never fear, even if you have to pass through that kind of a region, uh, because ultimately these, uh, these journeys are very beautiful and you rise up into the spiritual world of kind of reuniting with higher souls, soul groups, uh, that God force of bathing in that ocean of love. I mean, every bit of it, that's where they go. And in fact, when you look at large numbers of near-death experiences in uh, uh, modern series, you find that only about 3 to 5% of them are distressing or hellish NDEs. Uh, if I had just gone to the Earthworm's Eye View and come back to this world, I probably would have described it as something that sounded like a hellish NDE. Uh, and I will tell you that those can be just as beautifully transformative as all of those positive NDEs. So even, and, and I think also some of the hellish NDEs come from people who were very busy handing out pain and suffering to others mm. in their lifetime. Because when you go through a life review, the life review is experienced from all viewpoints, not just your own. So that everyone that you impacted with your actions and thoughts, it comes back at you. You feel it from their perspective. It's kind of like the golden rule, treat others as you would like to be treated, written into the very fabric of the universe. Uh, we, so we, it, recently, a, we recently had Mark Gober on this uh, show, and he has a, a page in his book where the golden rule is actually in every single religion. Um, and it makes sense because um, if we are all the same stuff, then what we do to other people, we're actually doing to ourselves. And what a beautiful um, built-in mechanism to learn um, these uh, lessons if we have a life review and we experience what we've done to other people or the energy of right. what we've done to other people. Exactly. Well, I think it's very helpful in what it does over time, because another key concept here is that our souls do come back again and again. With Reincarnation is scientifically validated beyond any reasonable doubt through the work of Ian Stevenson, Jim Tucker, University of Virginia, UVADOPS.org, 
uh, Jim Matlock, Carol Bowman, and others. I mean, there's no doubt that we come back. But as those investigators will tell you, those memories usually disappear by age six or seven. And that's why most of us, because of the amnesia of childhood, where we're, we don't remember readily those events at age two, three, and four, uh, but we also don't remember the memories we had of past lives and between lives. Uh, but when you get into the scientific literature on reincarnation, it's absolutely part of human reality. We just need to understand better how it works. I think the um, uh, president of the American Statistical Association, it's a woman, um, and I'm sorry, I'm yes, forgetting her. Uh, Jessica Utz. There you UGTS. go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she said, look, if this was any other branch of medicine, um, it would be completely accepted as beyond proven. Uh, right. But because there's this bias, um, you know, it's uh, and can we talk a, a bit about that bias? Why? And I heard you um, interviewed on um, Buddha at the gas pump. Rick Archer was actually a guest of the show several weeks People. ago. Um, but uh, he asked the question, why is it they fight so hard um, to not see evidence that's right there in front of them. Well, you got to remember that uh, people, you know, spend their academic careers uh, and their, you know, professional reputation depends a lot on what they've written and talked about and the positions they've taken. Uh, and if you're, you know, two or three decades into that kind of a career in pure materialism, and other people are talking about this incredible evidence for a, a totally opposite worldview. You know, that, no, the brain does not create consciousness, that it's a filter or transceiver that allows this primordial unified mind to come in. And we have this little eddy current of that because the brain is filtering in only a certain amount that kind of applies to our, uh, you know, needs as this soul living this life. Um, that's where uh, the, the whole thing uh, starts to them to be very threatening. Uh, and also, it's it, you know it's kind of hard to measure a lot of this stuff. Our modern science is absolutely uh, you know built on measuring you know things in the physical world, in space and time, uh, and and looking for correlations of events and trying to use the world the worlds of physics, chemistry, and biology to have a scientific understanding of the nature of reality. And yet, what you find there's something called the hard problem of consciousness. It was first defined by David Chalmers. Australian philosopher in uh, his 1996 book, Conscious Mind. And that challenge, when you really get deeply into it, you realize there is no way you can simply march from the neural correlates of consciousness and measure what's going on in the brain and then figure out what's going on in conscious phenomenal experience. It does not work at all. And in fact, when you move beyond just the hard problem in the neuroscience uh, and also philosophy of mind, something called the binding problem, which is the apparent unity of consciousness in an individual, which is very tough to explain from the materialist position of all these different neuronal populations contributing to give you consciousness. So, so the, the, the hard problem is, is where do we find consciousness in the, in the brain? Is that correct? Well, no, the, there actually is an easy problem. Uh, the easy problem of consciousness is, what is what, what's going on in the brain that gets me a perception of the color red or the smell of a gardenia? or you know, the, the, the emotional truth of falling in love. What is the neural correlate that gives you that uh, you know, kind of effect? And you used to uh, test that, that stuff all the time, so you're intimately familiar with where, what parts of the brain are responsible absolutely. For, for which and, kinds of thoughts. And, and most of modern scientists, at least a decade ago, were estimating that the easy problem could be solved in maybe a century. But they thought the hard problem 
may be completely insoluble. And in fact, they're right. It's and not soluble tell our, from a materialist position. Tell our listeners and what the hard problem is. Sorry? Tell our listeners what the our hard problem is. Well, the hard problem is that there is no way to connect neural correlates to phenomenal experience and to this global kind of uh, uh, sense of our oneness of consciousness. And, there is, and it, in simpler language, that's that's is conscious. Where is consciousness coming from? Is that is that simpler language for all of that? That that might be, and it turns out to, consciousness turns out to be what's called an ontological primitive. Now, before my coma as a materialist neuroscientist, that ontological primitive was the physical world. You know, and so we look at everything going on in the physical world. I'll give you a concrete example about uh, this very problem for neuroscience. Um, in the last 12 years, there have been a number of papers that came out. In fact, one of them is referenced in the book Proof of Heaven, even though the text description uh, reference to that paper was stripped out by editors before it was published. They didn't want too much science in there because they said I was writing for an eighth grade average uh, reader. So that was that. But I mentioned this. Uh, and then there have been several papers since then that uh, are the very same thing. And what it is, is looking at people under the influence of psilocybin, magic mushrooms. Uh, anybody who's ever taken magic mushrooms know they cause tremendous kind of phenomenological experience. Uh, and, you, and most people would think, my gosh, my brain must be lighting up like a Christmas tree with this substance. Same with LSD, DMT, dimethyltryptamine, active principle ayahuasca. And all of those substances have been studied using functional MRI, using magnetoencephalography, some of the best techniques we have of looking at the action of the brain, all those neurons and their networks. And what you find, surprisingly enough, is that with these substances, the brain is going dark. It's getting out of the way. The default mode network, which is made up of parts of the, of the frontal cortex and especially association parietal cortex, um, and is generally thought to be kind of our sense of the daydreaming ego self existing in the moment, that whole default mode network is completely dissolved. There is no neuronal population anywhere in the brain that increases in activity. So they're all just kind of getting out of the so way. So everybody's having this amazing experience and the brain is turned down or off. Yeah, the brain is not doing it. How exciting. And, and that's why <laughs> neuroscience alone will never give you the answers about consciousness. That's why in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, we use neuroscience, hard problem of consciousness. We use that philosophy of mind, the binding problem, as I said, that unity of consciousness that in the individual that's so hard to explain from a materialist position. We use all the evidence for non-local consciousness, from parapsychology, telepathy, as an example. Guillaume Playfair's book on twin telepathy, 35% of identical twins have powerful, provable telepathic experiences. Telepathy is absolutely real. Someone who tells you it's not simply hasn't done their homework. Uh, and then, of course, the big key, and this, again, is part of our argument uh, for the primordial mind and living in a mindful universe, is quantum physics. Because ultimately, the deepest lesson of quantum physics, as it's tried to show us for the last hundred years, is that consciousness is primordial in the universe. And uh, and I heard you I heard you exciting. quoting Heisenberg. He had a, has a terrific quote about taking the first sip. Uh, and would you share that with our listeners? Yeah, I love that. And Werner Heisenberg, of course, a, a very renowned uh, quantum physicist. He came up with the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which is absolutely crucial to this understanding because it applies at the level of ion channels and synaptic vesicles in the brain. Those are all completely subject to Heisenberg's uncertainty. Um, 
And that's how top-down causality mind over matter works. But the quote is, uh, and he, he won that Nobel Prize in 1932, so a very uh, respectable Nobel laureate. He said, the first gulp from the glass of natural sciences will lead you towards atheism. But at the bottom of the glass, God is waiting for you. And, and, and that's, that's you that. can't separate the observer from the observed, which gets really exciting because just by observing something, and you, you mentioned something really interesting because you talked about the brain as a reducing valve. Um, and, and when you look at the, the fact that when we look, our, the vision, human vision only picks up a very small amount of the visual um, field that's out there. Our, our ears only pick up a very small amount of what's out there. Our conscious minds are only processing 40 bits per second, while our subconscious mind is processing 40 million bits per second. So what we're aware of is so teensy tiny, and you described right. it as a reducing valve. Well, this is why meditation and centering prayer are so important. Because once you realize your brain, your, your mind, your phenomenal experience is not simply the subject of electrochemical reactions uh, in your brain, um, you know, in the moment, the sitting here between your ears, but telepathy, remote viewing, all these other examples of non-local consciousness, distance healing, uh, power of prayer. And then you've got this whole category of near-death experiences, shared death experiences, which are just like near-death in many ways, but they happen to perfectly healthy people. And then all the after-death communications that probably occur in more than half of our population. Uh, I mean, all of this tremendous body of evidence shows us without doubt that we're, we're sharing this one mind. Um, and, and this is where uh, our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, can make such an important statement about that primordial consciousness and the brain as a filter. Uh, and likewise, uh, Larry Dossey's book, The One Mind, Steve Taylor's book, Spiritual Science, all three of these. And plus, I would, I would argue, as Pim Van Lobel does in his uh, uh, BigelowInstitute.org essay, uh, second place winner in the Bigelow contest, proving the afterlife from a scientific perspective, uh, Pim Van Lommel also, in addition to those three resources, mentions a paper by Bernardo Castro, um, uh, the, the uh, Universe in Consciousness, that came out of the, I think, Journal of Consciousness Studies in 2018. But these are all resources, very profound scientific arguments for the oneness of mind and the brain as a filter. Uh, and this is so important to understand these bigger concepts of things like the afterlife perceptions, reincarnation, every bit of it starts to, you know, become more realistic as we explore these theoretical models and all this empirical data. Uh, and it leads us to this beautiful notion uh, of the reality, how NDEs are the tip of the spear. Uh, and I will point out that more than 90% of people who have had near-death experiences across history, across all continents, millennia, what have you, more than 90% come back, not just believing, but knowing in this loving force of benevolence at the core of the universe that is so apparent to them deep in these journeys. Uh, and, and it's not as if they're finding Satan there at the deepest, uh, they're finding pure love. And that's why it's so important to recognize that uh, our souls, our, our kind of spiritual unity is truly one of love, compassion, kindness, mercy, acceptance. This is where we can truly succeed as souls to let that little ego mind, the ego uses fear and anxiety, the ego is right there at the heart of addictions, not just to substances, but addictions to sex, addiction to love, addiction to work, addiction to exercise. Addiction can take many forms, but it's really, uh, at heart, it's, it's kind of your ego making these demands uh, that ultimately do not uh, 
uh, help your bigger soul experience. And right. this is why meditation, centering prayer for me is always going in. I let my ego voice state a request, make an intention, but then I dive deep uh, with those sacred acoustic stones uh, into meditation that allows me to kind of connect with that higher soul and that primordial mind. And it's a tremendously helpful and healing to do that kind of thing. Beautiful. Love that. Yeah, I, I do help with people with addictions as well. And I, I describe it as that hole that you are trying to fill with whatever it is, whether it's shopping, sex, drugs, whatever, and you can't fill it with that stuff. You it the 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 filling has to come from within and and as you're and describing be spiritual in nature. Yeah. It's not material. Yep. And turn, so. turning down the 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 mind that doesn't have the answers and connecting to all that is um is so rich. Um, so Dr. Alexander, I, I just interviewed somebody who, um, when I heard the story, I, I knew I had to share it. It hasn't gone public yet, but this fellow, um, was in a coma for 22 days. Um, what, what was the cause of his coma? Um, it, he, um, uh, they're actually not exactly sure. He was out with friends and something occurred and he ended up in the hospital. Um, and, and the so probably some kind of head trauma. Uh, could be, uh, um, likely. Um, or but substance but or... He, he was offline. Of, in fact, the, har the hospital wanted to harvest his brain. Uh, and for three weeks, they had taken MRIs. And, and there are some parallels to your story, which I think are so, so important. You had tremendous community support around you. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and, and your wife actually had reached out to somebody to connect with you. Um, and, and that person came back with some important messages as to how to interact with you while you were in the hospital bed. So you were yeah. well attended for that period of time that you were in, in the, in the hospital bed, com completely unresponsive. Um, right. and, and your wife was told to be by the bedside with you, instructing you that you had the ability to come back. Um, and it wasn't your time to go yet. Um, can you talk about how important that is? Because again, I'm struck by the parallels between your story and, and this young fellow's story, because he was beloved by his community and people, this was during COVID, you know, just right, showed right. up at the hospital day after day, after day, after day, even though they couldn't be in the room with him, couldn't talk to him, couldn't, I mean, he was laying in a bed like you were strapped down, you know, with a ventilator, unresponsive. Not. Um, how important is that to have that beautiful, all, all those souls around you, um, loving you, connecting with you, um, giving you a, a helping hand to return and share this amazing story with, with others. Okay. It's uh, important to point out, we're going to skip forward through a lot of my story. Oops, There's a tremendous <laughs> amount there uh, about what I call the Gateway Valley, uh, all the earth-like features, spiritual features, and then ascending to higher levels all the way to core, uh, infinite inky blackness, but was a pure oneness where all dualities are resolved. Um, there's much more to the story. But then as we get towards the very end, we're getting to the uh, part you're asking me about. Um, and the very, very end after uh, all these beautiful uh, occurrences is where I, uh, for one thing, I'd, I'd been told that when I first entered that core realm, the sanctum sanctorum of the divine, the deepest I went, that I wasn't there to stay, that I'd be going back. Uh, but that I'd be taught many things. And there came a time, though, where I, I would oscillate through these various levels of the spiritual realm using music, vibration, frequency, the memory of that to help me navigate. And at the very end of it all, I saw six faces. Uh, and this is at a point where I tried to use the musical notes to conjure up my light pathway portal coming up into the Gateway Valley in the core. 
and it didn't work. Uh, and so I was now back down to where they kind of promised I would end up, and I didn't know what that was all about. And that's when I saw the six faces around me. And the six faces were very important uh, because, in fact, of five of them were people who were physically present in the ICU room the last 24 hours I was in coma. And very notably, many other family and friends who had been there earlier in the week, I had no memory of. And as I point out in the book, Proof of Heaven, the timing of all this is such that it proved to me that the vast majority of the spiritual journey that I described had to happen between days one and four or one and five of a seven-day coma. Uh, and the you know four or five part has to do with who you're referring to, Susan Rinches, a family friend. I'd first met her in freshman English in UNC Chapel Hill in 1972. We were friends. Then we lost track of each other. Then uh, years later, she was teaching with my former spouse uh, at a school in Raleigh, North Carolina. They became very good friends. And what, um, what uh, my former spouse and her friend, uh, Sylvia, who was also at the bedside, one of those faces I saw uh, coming out of coma, they remembered that Susan had done this work called channeling. Now, of course, if you'd asked me about channeling before my coma, I would have said, it's a bunch of hooey uh, nonsense. Well, guess what? She was there front and center in my uh, experience as one of those six faces. And Susan was never within 120 miles of me physically. She was down in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, in her home. She'd been contacted by my family. You know, I'm in a coma and uh, uh, not expected to survive. Can you do anything to help? And so Susan would come to me in this kind of channel state. And she was very reassuring and soothing, just like the other faces of the people who were physically there. She helped to bring me back to this world. And I remember I, I met up with Susan about six months after all this. Uh, and she said it was one of the scariest episodes she'd ever had. She wrote a book about a lot of this called Third Eye Open, which I can highly recommend to people. But uh, in her experiences, she, she used the analogy, it was kind of like an oasis in a desert. And she said she'd walk up, there was a rope coming out of a well in the oasis, and she'd start pulling on the rope. And normally she'd start pulling and she could feel some resistance because the soul was still there on the other end of the rope. But in my case, she said, and she'd... Uh, channel to many people in coma, many of whom had gone on to die. And yet she said my case was one of the worst she could ever remember, where she pulled on the rope and there was nothing still there. And she thought I was already gone. And she worked very hard on these mantras, as you said, uh, telling my spouse and others to repeat these to me. And I think they were very important in bringing me back to this world. And so when she, when she pulled on the Sorry? rope and you were gone, um, how did she know or how did she sense that there was still some possibility there to reach there you? There was just a, the, gl the glimmer, the least amount of resistance that maybe there was something still there. But she said, I was very far gone with, from this world. And that certainly matches the medical facts in that medical case report. This was not a kind of a moderate or a severe case of meningitis. This was an extreme deadly, should have killed me case of meningitis. And Susan sensed the very same, same thing on the fourth and fifth nights of my coma when she channeled to me. Uh, so I'm, I'm very grateful. And I'll point out another thing in this, I mentioned in the book, Proof of Heaven, um, but it has to do with your question of, of having a supportive crowd. Uh, I remember when that first night I was in coma on November 10th, my older son, Evan, had driven down from uh, college uh, got there about 11.15 that night, and he was just horribly distraught. Uh, my sister Phyllis arrived. 
Uh, and uh, uh, when she got there, there was there was no one there. Uh, the the nurse had stepped out for a minute, uh, and she just saw me there on the ventilator. And it was and she then made some deal with the nurses that somebody in the family could be there holding my hand twenty four and seven. And to the extent that they could honor that, the nurses were very wonderful about honoring that request. So I had a family member there twenty four and seven holding my hand, giving me that love that sense of connection to this world. So in spite of this horrific illness that should have killed me, uh, I believe it was those beautiful connections through Susan's channeling, through my loved ones uh, you know, at the bedside and all the prayers that were said. I even had a, a vision of thousands of beings going off around me into the distance as I realized I could no longer ascend to the core, you know, the Gateway Valley and the core um, it, after multiple passes through there. Um, and, and yet that's what I sensed was this power of prayer all these beings going off in the distance. And the amazing thing about that was it occurred back in that kind of murky earth where my view, and yet I felt the same sense of spiritual home, of belonging, of comfort, of love, and bathing in that ocean of acceptance and purpose with the universe. And I sensed it from all these, the kind of energy of these beings around me who were kind of murmuring, and I call it the power of prayer when I came back to this world, because that's basically what I sensed is going on, and that's what helped to guide me back to this world. In, in this uh, experience with this fellow waking up after 22 days, and I, I'd love to actually connect you guys, and if you're interested in looking at his MRI, since yeah. you're such an expert, I'm I'm curious to see what your input would be. But the, the hospital was quite determined to harvest his brain after three weeks and said, there's nothing there, there's nothing there. Um, the father had had a near-death experience himself, so he was aware of this in-between state that one can go to. Um, so he communicated with the son and he said, look, if you're, if you want to go, he says, I understand it's, it can be a delicious, beautiful experience. And, and I understand that, but if you want to come back, give me a sign, track your eyes from left to right. Um, and he got the eye tracking. <laughs> right. And so, um, through Joe Dispenza's group, he set up a, a global, uh, coherence healing and happened to end up with a very large one because somebody had dropped out of a study that was being done. And so there was like 50 healers on the call, including the son's friends, because the father made sure that that happened. Um, and so this happened on a Friday and then it happened on a Monday. And then um, the the kids were all in the room. The The tube was taken out. And this, again, the hospital was was hours away from harvesting the brain. Um, and uh, the kids were, were making fun of him. They said, you know, hey, remember that time? And they were chiding him and, you know, loud. And, and, and so they heard him cough. And the friend said, well, that's him. That's that's Logan. He's trying to come back. <laughs> and so the father takes his cell phone. I mean, this is like a Hollywood movie that just like, you know, they'd throw away the script because it just couldn't happen. They stick the cell phone in the guy in in the in Logan's face and says, his, his, Logan, tell your mother you love her because she was on the other end of the the um, FaceTime. And, and, and Logan flutters his eyes and says, love you, mom. <laughs> that is so beautiful. Well, there's no question that kind of, of healing, distance healing, uh, can be very powerful. And, uh, you know, power of prayer, too. I mean, it's, it's beautiful as we start to realize and accept that this kind of spiritual nature of our, our being and the spiritual nature of the universe allow for this kind of uh, tremendous healing, uh, bringing us back into wholeness, uh, and that we can influence others and help in their healing, too. Uh, so this... Uh, Beautiful community is, is very useful. Do you often feel like Galileo or Copernicus where you've seen something completely different and it's like, uh, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with Occam's razor. Certainly. Yeah. 
So there's all this scientific evidence out there. I mean, that it's it's p-values are incredible. Um, you know, it's one in a bazillion, bazillion, bazillion that this could be anything other than what it is, which is that right. consciousness isn't located in the brain. And we are these magnificent, incredible spiritual beings. And you as a as a neuro, you know, brain surgeon, uh, what a great gift it is for you to come back and say, hey, this is reality. I mean, uh, right. what what a beautiful beautiful gift you have to give the world. Well, it is. And, and, you know, the interesting thing is some people think this is kind of a re religion versus science uh, or spirituality versus science. It turns out that the science is some of the best support I've had. Uh, you know, the scientific community, uh, especially because of the facts, the medical details uh, of my case that make it crystal clear this could not be, uh, you know, just some random dream or hallucination. And not only that, that Healing and coming into uh, wholeness after this kind of illness needs an explanation. And you can't just say, well, every now and then this happens, uh, especially to have that extraordinary experience that's then associated with this kind of healing. Uh, so it's, uh, uh, in fact, what I would recommend to people, uh, go to GalileoCommission.org, go to uh, scientificandmedical.net. These are two groups. I'm a scientific advisor for both of them you'll realize that the scientific community is far along this pathway of understanding. And it, it's because materialism, the conventional kind of Newtonian deterministic science that so many of us learned in, in school and then have put into practice in our lives, turns out it doesn't work at all to explain the brain-mind connection. As I said earlier, Heisenberg uncertainty principle is absolutely uh, functional right there at all the ion channels and synaptic vesicles in the brain because they're down at that tiny atomic and subatomic level. Uh, and this is where uh, that top-down causality and kind of the, the bigger one-mind hypothesis with the brain as a filter starts to make tremendous sense, just as we argue in living in a mindful universe. But there are scientific books on these topics that go even further for the really deep, deep, deep dive uh, for anybody out there who thinks they're up to the challenge and I promise you it's well worth it, you can read the books of Ed Kelly. Uh, he's at University of Virginia. He's edited three powerful books on consciousness. Um, um, the first was um, uh, Irreducible Mind in 2007, and then came uh, Beyond Physicalism in 2015, and finally, uh, that incredible uh, capstone to the current trilogy, uh, Consciousness Unbound, which came out, I believe, in March of 2021. And these books written by multiple scientists who have, you know, half century each of experience in this field make it crystal clear that materialism died long ago. Uh, quantum physics actually was the end of that uh, kind of misunderstanding of the brain-mind connection. Uh, and quantum physics uh, is uh, especially the Nobel Prize in 2022 for entanglement. Entanglement is all about the mental layer of the universe. Uh, it leaves behind our conventional notions of four-dimensional space-time as the theater on which all information transfer in this universe occurs. And we realize that at that mental layer, it's much deeper interconnections. And of course, uh, near-death experiences, you get right into that mental layer of the universe. That's where you reconnect with souls who have left the physical plane, souls who might be at a distance still in their body. Um, and that God force, uh, you review your life. Um, you know, birth, death, everything in between can be witnessed simultaneously. I mean, that realm offers us tremendous insight into the nature of reality. And it's one of the reasons why for materialists 
to just debunk and deny this evidence and say can't be it doesn't fit our materialistic models is is a that's a just a, a giant headache in the making because ultimately by rejecting data just as Carl Sagan said yes you know we are not smart enough to know what data is to be suppressed well Carl Sagan also uh, he um, rejected the information until. Uh Gosh, was it Rupert Sheldrake or, or he was he was asked to look at some information or com he commented on information and, and said it was completely bogus and fake. And then the scientists who he was poo pooing basically right. said, well, you can say this publicly, but you actually have to read my material first. And then he read the material and he has he just it, it completely flipped his reality. He's like, oh, wow, this actually is completely uh, verifiable. As I recall, that's on page 302 of Sagan's book, The Demon Haunted World. Ooh, good and memory. there were actually three uh, specific items, uh, categories of investigation, where he said they, they need further investigation. One of those was all the reincarnation work, uh, Ian Stevenson's work, which has been uh, you know, duplicated, replicated, uh, proven beyond any reasonable doubt. Um, and uh, I, I think the other was on telepathy, maybe the Gansfield uh, kind of dream projection telepathy experiments. Uh, and I'm sorry, I'm kind of blocking. I, I, I don't want to say anything that's too far off base, but there was a third. I think telekinesis element. was the other one. Tele what? Telekinesis? Uh, yeah, probably so. That would make sense. Or precognition. Or precognition. It was one of those. Precognition, absolutely. And, and Daryl Bim uh, and the meta analysis that he's done, precognition is absolutely a real part. That's one of the things that Jessica Utz also said, yep, it's real, uh, stati statistically, scientifically, absolutely validated, but because it touches on nerves, you know, that people, oh my God, that implies spirituality and God. No, 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 we can't have that as part of science. Sorry, folks, it's part of science. If you want to understand the real world, we must look at this much bigger picture of reality outside of materialistic uh, preconceptions. to this day, I mean, most of our scientific journals haven't openly looked at this and reported about it because it does completely flip the paradigm that we're all, we have been well, living under. I'm going to give your your uh, viewers uh, a resource, bigelowinstitute.org. And if you go to bigelowinstitute.org, you'll find 28 essays that were written two years ago in a contest. And they were written by uh, groups of scientists, all of whom had demonstrated at least five years of serious, rigorous, scientific uh, experience researching the afterlife question. Uh, and the question was simply, what's the best scientific evidence uh, for continuation of conscious awareness after permanent bodily death? And you'll find those 28 essays that answer that question. Many of them are deeply scientific. I can especially recommend uh, uh, Pimban Lommel. He wrote the second place essay. Uh, Bernardo Castrop, an incredible, uh, he's a big supporter of our book. In fact, they, they all are. Of living in a mindful universe. Um, but Castor wrote one. Julie Beichel wrote an excellent scientific paper on, on mediumship in a quintuply blinded study from winbridge.org. Um, and Dean Radin uh, from uh, Noetic Sciences. So start reading those papers and you'll realize absolutely the afterlife and reincarnation are real, period. Scientifically proven. It's no longer a question of whether these are true or not. They're absolutely real. Um, and any scientist who claims otherwise must also claim, oh, well, no, I haven't looked at any of those papers. I don't know anything about this, but I'm going to put out there as, you know, a theoretical physicist like Sean Carroll, 
oh, no, there's no such thing as the afterlife because we haven't discovered a spiritual particle. He obviously needs to pay much more attention to the measurement paradox uh, and the participatory anthropic principle of John Wheeler that imply absolutely the role of mind over matter and that it's not mind that's derivative from matter. It's that matter in the physical universe emerges from the mental. Yeah. So go to BigelowInstitute.org. You'll realize that any scientist trying to tell you that this um, near-death experiences and afterlife issues are woo-woo nonsense, that those people simply haven't done their homework and they're speaking from a position of willful ignorance, yeah. which I would not recommend paying attention to. <laughs> Mark Grover talks a lot about this in um, An End to Upside Down Thinking. Are you familiar with his book at all? I love Mark's work. Yeah, oh, I, goodness, I, uh, I love him. Yeah, I absolutely love, love his books. He, uh, we communicated a bunch early on when he was getting ready to put out The End of Upside Down Thinking. And uh, I, have, I, I have all of his books in front of me autographed by him. I, I adore Excellent. him. Um, yeah, Mark's, Mark's a wonderful, wonderful soul to be contributing to this because he came at it from kind of a different direction, but a very rational, logical mind. And uh, boy, he does a great job of making the case. Yeah. Um, oh, boy. This is so exciting. I just uh, it just it, it feels uh, I, 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 I know you're familiar with Thomas Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions, and we're, we're just we're, at, we're seeing right now. Yeah, we're and it's so exciting to be living in this time. It's like you know the Galileo and Copernicus, and you know they just completely. It's it's even more deep and personal than that because you can't get any more personal than human consciousness. I mean, that's all we have. <laughs> that's it. That's the only thing anyone has ever known is the inside of their own consciousness. Now, we think there's a world out there, a physical world, and yet what quantum physics screams at us and acknowledged by the Nobel Committee in 2022 by uh, giving out that prize to three scientists for entanglement is that mind is fundamental. Mind generates all of emergent reality, and the more we can learn how to interact with that uh, knowledge, and th this is where I highly recommend meditation, centering prayer. Uh, and my own tool for that is sacredacoustics.com. If you want to learn more about that, binaural beat brainwave entrainment. And of course, Karen Newell, the co-founder of that uh, um, meditation company, Sacred Acoustics, is also the co-author of my book, of, of our book, uh, Living in a Mindful Universe. And she's been my life partner for the last uh, 12 years. So uh, we're all in this together. Uh, and meditation is a beautiful uh, clue to anyone who has trouble with anxiety or depression or, you know, wanting to learn more about consciousness and this beautiful revolution, connect with souls of departed loved ones, et cetera. Uh, just pay attention to what we're saying in Living in the Mindful Universe. Start using sacred acoustics and you'll find an incredible power open up to you about uh, kind of connecting with your higher soul and with souls of departed loved ones and coming into a more meaningful sense of uh, shared purpose and, and meaning with the universe at large. And um, again, mention the resources that people can go to. I believe you have also some free downloads there that people can experience the binaural beats that you're offering. Well, absolutely. In fact, uh, there's a, a, a peer-reviewed scientific study supporting sacred acoustics for use in severe anxiety in, in, uh, in a busy New York City, Manhattan uh, practice. And that was published in Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease, I think it was January of 2020, uh, by Dr. Anna Yusim, Y-U-S-I-M. Uh, in that study, she found that over two weeks, sacred acoustics uh, gave a 26% reduction in anxiety symptoms in her very anxious Manhattan population versus only a 7% reduction in those who only received standard talk 
psychotherapy for anxiety over those two weeks. So scientific study at least telling you, wow, this stuff has great effect against anxiety. But of course, if you go to Sacred Acoustics website, you'll find a tremendous amount of, of uh, testimonials, et cetera, showing you far broader uses of spiritual exploration. But the reason I mention it is that the, the whole mind bundle is a package available at Sacred Acoustics. That's the bundle that was used in that scientific study, very effectively proven to alleviate anxiety. And that bundle, uh, early in the pandemic, uh, Karen started, she reduced the price, I think, to $19, which was a, a true bargain for that, that bundle. But she also, because she knew of the, the tragedy of the pandemic and the economic collapse, she wanted to make it free to people who couldn't pay $19. So there's still a free button there so that people, if they don't have the financial means, they can download the whole mind bundle and start taking advantage of this beautiful tool for alleviating anxiety. That's and wonderful. Consider... Thank you so much, because I'm a guest on a lot of podcasts, and I love to give away resources that are effective and affordable. So thank you so much. Well, thanks to Karen and Sacred Acoustics. They're the ones who did that. And and she just, uh, you know, she just figured she wanted to do some good for the world. And if that meant giving it away for free, fine, do it. And uh, I, I think, you know, a lot of people have used it. So uh, another resource I would recommend between Karen and myself, and this is Karen's brilliance, of course, most all of it is, um, she came up with innersanctumcenter.com. That's I-N-N-E-R sanctumcenter.com. And if people go there and explore, you'll find there are multiple avenues of investigation. Uh, there's a mental health practitioner course there that uses sacred acoustics, has Dr. Anna Yusum and myself and Karen teaching that course. Uh, there's also a series of webinars that Karen and I do monthly uh, with uh, our fans, and those are available there. Uh, also, a set of uh, interviews we did for more than two years, every two weeks during the pandemic, because we weren't going around seeing all of our wonderful friends, uh, you know, global thought leaders in consciousness, other experiencers, et cetera. And so we interviewed them uh, in, in Zoom protocol, and uh, all those interviews are available at innersanctumcenter.com. Um, and so I would highly recommend that resource to people. Uh, of course, sacredacoustics.com, ebenalexander.com, E-B-E-N alexander.com. Uh, my reading list, the FAQ page, the blog postings, there are a tremendous number of interviews, audio, video. Uh, so there's a lot of information available on all these sites uh, to help people really get up to speed on this kind of understanding. Uh, thank you so much. I could talk to you for a week. <laughs> I'm so excited about all the uh, common connections we have and um, um, love it, love it, love it. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Alexander, for being on uh, Next Level Healing. Uh, any last minute things that you'd like to offer? Yes, I'd like to remind people that we are truly, as Thomas Kuhn pointed out in his book on scientific revolutions, we're in the middle of a scientific revolution. You don't have to wait for the whole scientific community and the culture at large to get on board. You can enjoy the benefits of this tremendous uh, soul growth kind of connection with the spiritual nature of the universe, enhancement of your life, uh, appreciation of the binding force of love as the healing power. So start doing it. Start meditating. Uh, you know, check out these websites I've mentioned. Um, uh, keep in touch with us. We love communication. Uh, and uh, just enjoy the revolution. It's going to be a tremendous 
boon for humanity. It'll make this planet a far more peaceful, harmonious, and loving place. And we will start being proper stewards of the planet. Instead of succumbing to the corporate greed that has fueled the climate crisis and plastic pollution, warfare, the military-industrial complex, we will start focusing our human uh, efforts on love, compassion, kindness, mercy, acceptance for all. And believe me, it's a wonderful healer for the individual as well as for the world at large. Beautiful. Love it. Uh, quantum physics has so much to offer us. Uh, um, you know, how we treat others is how we treat ourselves. And as Mark Gober and yourself point out, uh, you if, if you honor and love others the way you would honor and love yourself, then you can't help but have a better world and the planet. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, Tara. Great talking with you today. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Alexander. And folks, you if you got value from this, please click like and subscribe, and we will see you on the next episode of Next Level Healing. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Next Level Healing. Please like, subscribe, and let us know how this helped you. How can it be even more life-changing? We love hearing from you. And if you're eager to upgrade your life, click the button here or go to consultterra.com and get your free customized GPS map. Get the coordinates for where you are now and where you want to go. Clients consistently report it's faster and easier than they thought possible. Remember, you were meant for more and it is available to you. See you right here next week for our next episode.